Ooh, this is exciting. I'm excited. <laughs> um, you want to start? You want me to start? What you, I'll what start. You do? Cool. Sure, I'll bring us in. Hello, podcast land. Welcome back to another episode of Tour Guide Tell All. We are your friendly uh, neighborhood, hopefully, tour guides coming to you from Washington, D.C., wanting to give you guys the dirt, the skinny on all things political, scandalous, interesting, and fabulous. And uh, we are back with another episode. Uh, and as always, I'm Rebecca. I'm Becca. And we are the oh, Rebecca's. <laughs> and we're here today as summer is dawning to talk about a non-summer topic. We are going to talk about an election. You know how we love our political history. We have done a couple of election episodes. We've talked about uh, the election of 1840. We've talked about the election of 1912. We have several more on the in the planning stages for some point or another. Uh, but we wanted to do something a little bit more modern. And are we ready to sort of do some election stuff, Becca? I think we are. Uh, so I'm really excited. We wanted to um, tackle another election episode because it gives us a chance to talk not just about one person, uh, but to really talk about a number of people, uh, talk about a period of time in history. And we're bringing it a little bit more contemporarily than we've been lately. We're talking about the election of 1976, the bicentennial year. Um, yay. Uh, and I really am excited to jump into this because I think that there's a lot that happens in 1976 that will sound very relevant to our political world today. And I think something that we see echoes of uh, from previous podcasts as well. I do want to just sort of as a little caveat mention that generally we try to avoid talking about living people, but because of really good genes, some of the people involved in the election of 1976 are still alive today. Um, yes. So we typically try to steer clear of living figures. However, it's not possible uh, at this moment, but we're going to try to talk about these people in the context of 1976 and not so much in the context of their legacy or who they are in 2021. So yes. something to keep in mind. So it's 1976. Um, it's the bicentennial. There's a ton of uh, pride in America. There's a ton of like history uh, celebration in America. I know that you have a particular fun fact about your favorite bicentennial artifact. <laughs> I do. Uh, so the bicentennial is such a big thing. And I did a deep dive a while back about the bicentennial. And it was crazy time. Like you'd expect it to be a big deal. But this is 10 years in the planning. It's a 15-month celebration. So it starts in April of 1975 and goes straight on through basically until July 4th, 1976. And there's a train that makes us a ghost to every single one of the lower 48 states. And it they're all of the major sports leagues have their all-star games in Philadelphia. President Ford is going to throw out the first pitch at the uh, baseball all-star game. And he had been an athlete himself. So, you know, part of his image uh, looks really good. There's just all kinds of special events. The queen comes over for a state visit and dines with President Ford. Uh, and there's just all kinds of crazy 1976 bicentennial swag. And the normal stuff you'd find like t-shirts and hats, like that's, very every day. We see that today with political stuff. Uh, you're, but you're also going to see, you know, music comes out for the bicentennial. You've got um, all sorts of disposable items like matches and um, things like that. And the thing that I thought was the coolest is I found a sugar packet, like the type that you get at a diner when you order coffee, like Domino Sugar. They had made sugar packets with bicentennial 1976 stamped on it, which that's like devotion right there I feel like when you're like it's one thing to have a t-shirt but when you're actively like issuing special sugar packets for the bicentennial like this is a big deal so the bicentennial year was a big thing and that's gonna play I think in a big way into particularly Ford strategy uh, for the election in the fall. Um, and so, yeah, so our president in 1976 is Gerald Ford. Um, he has a really a unique and unusual path to the presidency, one that has never really been 
uh, I think, followed since. Um, mm. 1976 is only really two years since the resignation of President Richard Nixon. And Nixon is a huge component to the election of 1976, even though he is not a candidate in this election. Mm -hmm. uh, Nixon's presidency had really brought us out of the sort of optimistic, uh, I think, uh, ideals of the 1960s. Nixon had sort of carried us into this new decade. Um, his presidency, uh, you know, and Nixon, I should say too, is a man who had been in politics a very long time before mm -hmm. he ever becomes president of the United States. This is a man who could not have been more of a political animal. Um, he's very tied to the idea of American politics in many people's mind. He represents, I think, the idea of inside the beltway, probably mm -hmm. more than anyone. And so, you know, he's got a presidency that seems mired in controversies, big and small. Uh, this is a presidency where we're, we're ending the war in Vietnam. This is a presidency where we're, we're starting to just um, move into a new decade. Uh, he's going to uh, lose his vice president, Spiro Agnew, in 1973. And so Richard Nixon will be the first president to appoint a vice president under the terms of the 25th Amendment. So Gerald Ford becomes appointed uh, vice president in 1973. And then Richard Nixon becomes the first and only president in our history to resign the office uh, because of the Watergate scandal in 1974. So Gerald Ford, who was never elected vice president, then becomes president of the United States. So this is really unprecedented for lack of a better word. You have a man in the White House who has not been elected um, to the vice presidency or the presidency. Um, and this is not a knock on Gerald Ford as an individual. Um, you know, this is a, a man who I, I think uh, really, really loved the country and wanted to do what was best. But already um, he's an incumbent, but he's not coming from the place of strength an incumbent typically comes from. Yeah, he's not. It's a really, Gerald Ford, I feel like, I don't know. I have a lot of sympathy for Gerald Ford. And also I should go on the record as saying that my love for his wife is real and total. Betty Ford is a total badass. Um, but it, we're not going to relitigate Watergate because that's a whole like different thing but um gerald ford comes into the vice presidency in the wake of scandal and then he becomes president in the wake of scandal and he had been a long-term congressman like there's this sort of idea that gerald ford just like sprang out of nowhere and that's not at all fair gerald ford had been a long time very good congressman from the fifth district of michigan he was i think 13 terms in the house like he had been in the leadership he was a very solid legislator he had a lot of good credentials um, and he had a lot of friends, which is how he's going to find himself vice president in the wake of the Spiro Agnew resignation. The trouble with this is Gerald Ford, in order to become vice president, he's going to have to be sort of more moderate than I think Richard Nixon would have liked. Nixon's a little bit more conservative. Ford is therefore much more moderate for the Republican Party. And then he becomes president. Again, he's been elected to neither office. And so he's the incumbent, but he also hasn't faced the voters or at least any voters that aren't in the fifth district of Michigan. And that's going to be kind of uncomfortable for him because now he has to run as the incumbent, but without actually being the incumbent. And it's just a tie when I have a lot of sympathy for the, the place that he finds himself in. And he really is the shadow of Nixon is over him all the time and the shadow of Watergate. One of the very first things he does as president is going to be to pardon Richard Nixon, which is a very controversial move. I have a lot of sympathy with Ford for doing this because had Nixon not done it or had Ford not done it rather um, Nixon would have been in the headlines uh, endlessly as Watergate sort of continued to spool out. What Ford is doing is establishing the presidency as his own man and sort of ending the chapter with Watergate. But it's very controversial that Nixon kind of gets off the hook. So Ford starts with this cloud over him. And he also, he has the very real cloud of not being seen as legitimate. I mean, he is the president. He's been sworn in. We have a process that worked in this country, but he also has not faced the voter, the entire electorate to become president. And so it's really he's stuck in a no-win situation, I think. And for good or for bad, most presidents, when you run for re-election, um, you have four years of your record to fall back on. Um, you have four years of 
presidential action. Ford doesn't have that. Ford's been in the White House less than two years when this election begins, when the campaigning process begins. And back then, the campaign process didn't start as early as it does now. Um, imagine if it had, he would have had almost really nothing. So he doesn't have four years of presidential activity to establish his record. He has less than two. And so much of those two years is unfortunately overshadowed by Nixon and by the Watergate scandal. And Ford, I should be clear to say, has no real connection to what happens in the Watergate scandal. Um, he, you know, he just has the unfortunate luck to have been appointed by Nixon, and thus he is tied to Nixon in many voters' minds. Even though Ford was not involved in any of 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 what the Nixon administration was doing with right. with Watergate and the subsequent cover up. Right, Ford is a good, upstanding guy. Like. He's, you know, he's from the Midwest. He's played football in college. He's really lovely. And I feel like this is one of the things about this election that really fascinated me. And I'm glad we're talking about it is that we have this very calcified view of this election that's sort of in our modern mythos, which is, you know, Ford represents a Republican party that is weakened dangerously by this Watergate scandal and that Ford really doesn't have an electorate behind him. Jimmy Carter is anointed by the Democratic Party and runs to an overwhelming victory. And almost none of that is real. Like it's not like as we're going to delve into the Republican Party was weakened, but not fatally so. And Jimmy Carter was not anointed. And Jimmy Carter did not run away with the 1976 election. And spoiler alert, the reason I think we're going to get to this in a bit, but the reason that I think Ford lost is not Jimmy Carter. I think there's another party at play. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to him <laughs> in a bit. So let's break it down. As we approach the election of 1976, the party in control of the White House is the Republican Party. Ford is a Republican. He is, as Rebecca sort of mentioned, represents a more moderate wing of the Republican Party than Nixon and then some other conservatives, um, people like Goldwater, for example. Um, so you have Gerald Ford. He is a Republican. He's a moderate. He's very well liked um, mm -hmm. by a lot of the party um, power um, because of his long career in Congress, because of his um, record of being sort of an effective legislator and a, a good um, kind of workhorse for typical Republican legislation. So it is not that he doesn't have the support of his own party. Um, certainly party leadership feels that they can find a path forward for Ford as the nominee. They recognize it's a challenge that he doesn't have the typical strength of an incumbent, but he is going into this Republican primary as the president. And there are plenty of people in the Republican Party who figure we can mount a campaign and help Ford win a legitimate election to the presidency. Unfortunately, though, the mm -hmm. I think shadow of Nixon is still very much there. The um, the taint of Watergate is still there in the party. And you have a conservative, um, a, a movement of conservatism that is really starting to grow within the Republican party. There are factions of the party growing more and more conservative and Ford does not represent them and their values. And so this is really fascinating to me because it doesn't really happen in our contemporary era, but you have Ford as the incumbent facing a pretty strong primary challenge within his own party. Mm. And that is going to be led by a man named Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Never heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So former governor of California, former actor Ronald Reagan is going to mount a conservative challenge from the right, from the ideological flank of an incumbent pre sitting president's own party, which is unheard of. It was unheard of then. It's unheard of now. It's very very rare and it just smacks of a lot of opportunism frankly um reagan is more conservative he aligns himself with evangelicals with the religious uh sort of wing and so he's going to take up the position on the right uh, of ford ford is very much a moderate uh he's um his wife is outspoken as a feminist she's a um a pro era she's they're pretty you know he's pro-choice reagan is very much not and so there that's going to be the contest uh in the for the um 
Republican nomination. Now, it is a hard fought nomination fight and they go to the mat for this. This goes all the way to the convention. Like they actually show up at the convention in Kansas City in the summer of 1976 without knowing who's going to be the nominee. Ford has the lead in terms of votes and pledged delegates, but he doesn't have enough of them. So him and Reagan are separated by like 200 votes in terms of uh, the um, the dele pledge delegates. So it's a very narrow contest. And Ford has decided that he's going to use the trappings of the White House to sort of pull people with him, you know, rides on Air Force One, one-on-one -on -one meetings with him, uh, all sorts of special like earmarks and stuff in order to sway delegations to his side. Reagan obviously is not president, so he doesn't have that option. But Reagan seems to have, and this is evident as the convention goes on, Reagan has the enthusiasm. Ford doesn't quite have the level of enthusiasm from the electorate that uh, Reagan is seeming to bring to the table. And Reagan, um, in this primary, wins some of the earliest Republican primaries in the 76 election. So he um, is really going to kind of damper some of that enthusiasm for Ford, because when Reagan beats him swiftly in some of those early primaries, it raises questions about what Ford can do in a general election. And that is one of the concerns with Ford. He hasn't run nationwide. He's he's popular in Michigan and he's popular in, in his home district, but can he win a nationwide election? And when Reagan sort of trounces him in some of those early primaries, and then when he beats him in Texas um, handily and sweeps up those, you know, lots and lots of of primary delegates from Texas, it does raise kind of these concerns about can Ford bring this home in November of 1976. And so there's enthusiasm for Reagan, but Reagan also very successfully sort of showcases some of where Ford is vulnerable in elections. And so it's it's very it's a very savvy um, campaign that his team launches. Um, you know, Reagan manages to run this campaign in such a way that he doesn't seem as though he's trying to hurt his own party. He doesn't come across um, outwardly, I think, to the voters as someone who's trying to split the party, but very much as someone who's trying to say, look, you know, our guy has vulnerabilities. Our guy might not be able to bring this home. I can. And Reagan, above all else, certainly is charismatic in a yes. way that Ford lacks, typically, especially in things like uh, campaign speeches and rallies. And so we're going into this Republican convention, August of 1976 in Kansas City, with the last time uh, in our history that the nomination is still essentially undecided. Uh, and this includes the sitting president of the United States, not sure if his party is going to make him the nominee. Right. And it's so interesting. You know, one of the things that when I did the research for this, one of the things that Ford suffers from is he has a series of physical mishaps. Like he falls downstairs and, you know, trips and things like that. And Ford, like of all of our presidents, there have not been too many who have been more athletic than Gerald Ford. He played college football. He was an expert. He was golfer. scouted for the NFL. Right. He was. He was a very physically in command of himself and just we're kind of at the dawn of this like news cycle that's unrelenting and they just keep showing these pictures of Ford and that fits this narrative of him kind of being bumbling. Whereas Reagan is Ronald Reagan. He's a Hollywood actor. He's polished. He's got clearly has a lot of charisma. He has a polished wife who's adoring of him. And not that Betty Ford doesn't love her husband and she does, but like Ray, there's a special magic that like is played up with the Reagan marriage. So it's this very much a contest of like, these two very disparate personalities that are going to, the press is going to sort of make this in a contest in a way that maybe it shouldn't have been like Ford is kind of bumbling and plain spoken, whereas Reagan is very polished. And it just is a, the for the press doesn't do Ford a lot of favors. I think. Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of times if you talk to people, at least our age or our generation, and they think of Gerald Ford, it's not uncommon to get the sort of the Saturday Night Live version of Gerald yes. Ford as portrayed by Chevy Chase. So you have things happening culturally, too. Like you said, the news cycle becoming more unrelenting. Uh, I think the role of television, of, of pundits and late night TV, uh, really shading Ford. And again, the fact that he he hadn't won 
a national election to be vice president or president, he's coming in with some weaknesses. And Reagan is opportunistic and he takes total advantage of that. Reagan also is able to point to his previous uh, position of Nixon and say, hey, I thought Nixon was a problem in 68. I thought Nixon was a problem in 72. Um, you know, he really is able to sort of position himself as, you know, I tried to tell you guys this guy was bad news for our party. And so Reagan has this sort of little uh, ability to sort of say, hey, I wasn't part of that. And in fact, I tried to mount opposition to Nixon a long time ago, because Reagan is not new to party politics. By 1976, he's also been a player uh, for quite some time. So we get to this convention, and we have an incumbent who um, has been using certainly the power of the presidency to try to build up support. He has the support of a lot of uh, sort of the party pundits. But then you have Reagan, who has built up a very uh, real challenge, has built up enough delegates to really make this too close to call, and who goes into this convention with a lot more general enthusiasm from the populace for this nomination. So there is sort of a general prevailing wisdom that this could be several ballots, that this mm -hmm. convention could end up being very heated. And then they do the first ballot and Ford wins. <laughs> so Ford manages to beat Reagan very narrowly on that first ballot, which well, is a surprise. They do do the first ballot and he does win on the first ballot, but a lot of this like happens behind closed doors. There's like a lot of meetings in dark smoke-filled rooms led by only men because this is still the 70s. And Reagan is gonna like basically there's delegates that run up and down the hotel between the two camps and are basically like how are we going to make this happen like we have to present a united front and they there's the idea that if you have this convention in front of the entire country where we go through multiple ballots it's going to weaken the party and so they want to have this sort of present a united front and so there's a backroom deal basically to get for the nomination and I mean, Ford's the incumbent anyway. He's got the power of the, you know, the White House. He, and so he's going to get the nomination. But in order to do that, Ford is going to make concessions on a lot of things, a lot of issues and party platform planks that are important to him, pulling the party towards the right, more towards the Reagan side of things in order to get Ronald Reagan's endorsement and sort of for Reagan to give him the sign off and encourage Reagan's own people to vote for him. And the other thing that he's Reagan's going to kind of insist on is that Ford reconsider his vice presidential pick. Now, I want to put in a brief word for little vice presidential history here. When Ford was vice president, he becomes president and then they have to appoint another person as vice president. That person's going to be Nelson Rockefeller, who no one in the Republican Party really likes. <laughs> Nelson Rockefeller has the distinction of being the only person the um, to serve, only vice president, who's never contested in a general election for either president or vice president, ever. He never faces the voters and is a heartbeat away from being the presidency. Anyway, that's not Nelson Rockefeller's fault. He's a good politician, <laughs> but he's far too liberal for uh, the Republican faithful. And so Nelson Rockefeller, there's no contest. Ford is not running with Rockefeller. That's not going to This is not happening. <laughs> so Ford is considering a couple of different people, sort of more moderates. Uh, one of the people that he's considering is a man named William Ruckelshaus, who had been uh, very anti-Nixon. He had very strong anti-Nixon credentials. He had been part of the Saturday Night Massacre. He was a moderate. He had a moderate sort of platform. He was Republican, definitely, but was definitely on the sort of more middle of the road. Reagan is not really going to like that so very much. In fact, Reagan arrives at the convention with his own vice president, who had been a more liberal senator from Pennsylvania, and he had gotten hit from his uh, supporters for picking a more liberal vice presidential candidate. So Reagan is going to really insist, the sort of Reagan wing of the party is going to really insist that Ford pick a more conservative uh, vice presidential running mate. Not Reagan. Doesn't Reagan doesn't want to be that person. Yeah, Reagan is not interested in being anyone's coattails. Nope. He's not interested in having to make any compromises running as Ford's vice president that could hurt him in a future presidential run, which Reagan it knows that Reagan knows going into 76 that he yeah. will run again in 1980. Yes, yes, 100%. And he's not interested in being tied to Ford. <laughs> No, he is not interested in being tied to Ford. And so, but he is interested in sort of having his issues like addressed. Absolutely. 
Um, and so eventually he's going to for the right wing of the party is going to force Ford out of his ideological comfort zone. And Ford picks a Senator from Kansas named Bob Dole. Now, Bob Dole is, uh, was a Senator for many years. He's a world war two vet. He's a great public servant. He is going to run for president himself in about 20 more years. Um, spoiler alert and bob dole is represents the more conservative flank of the party and so bob dole is going to be ford's running mate which is kind of a marriage of convenience in a lot of significant ways and at the part at the convention it should be said they nominate ford and he gives this big acceptance speech and, you know, the vice president and their wives and they all come on stage and they do that like very patented moment where they all hold hands. And then Ford does something a little unusual, which is he's going to invite Reagan on stage with him. And Reagan gives, gives a con- basically a concession speech that turns out not to be a concession, concession speech at all. This, so is not, this is not Reagan getting up and saying, Ford's our guy and we got to come uh, together and let's all throw our support behind him, which is, I think, what Ford is hoping will happen, that yeah. this will be this big unifying moment. And, and Reagan's going to assure the conservative wing that Ford is th- the way to go. And Reagan absolutely does not do that. He seizes on this opportunity. He really does. And it's also like the whole convention, the enthusiasm had been much more there for Reagan. Like Betty Ford got cheers when she came into the convention hall but nancy reagan got a 15 minute standing ovation the the chair had to call for order three times when nancy reagan would come into the convention like it is clear where the star power is it is clear where the enthusiasm is and so ford and in retrospect this looks like a dumb move but only because of how reagan played it hat ford's instinct is correct here i think bring the guy who fought hard for the primary bring him on stage get him to concede bring party unity the whole thing like i can see this going really well but that's not what reagan's interested in at all reagan gives like a five minute concession speech he does not mention ford at all he really doesn't mention the 1976 election at all he basically launches his own presidential campaign in 1980 and so it's 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 seen as ford is kind of the also ran and people are leaving the convention going maybe we really did vote for the wrong guy like maybe it's the right person here And so I think, and I feel like this is probably already obvious, that the reason that Gerald Ford, sort of the biggest reason I think Gerald Ford sort of loses is not because of uh, Jimmy Carter. It's actually because of Ronald Reagan. Like Ronald Reagan screws Ford in about five different ways. And that's, I feel like the, the sort of, he weakens him out of the gate. He forces him to the right with his vice presidential pick. He doesn't concede and then really does not campaign for him. He really goes into the fall campaign and Reagan's like, yeah, okay, Ford, great. You know, Reagan doesn't outwardly do anything to undermine Ford. He's not out there giving speeches against him, but he really isn't bringing his voter base to Ford, which is what, of course, Ford and other party members who were sort of in these negotiations for bringing the Republican Party together, they're hoping that Reagan's going to bring that conservative wing to the polls, going to energize them, going to get them to support Ford. And Reagan's sort of like, you know, obviously, I would prefer the Republican candidate to the Democratic one, but Reagan is not out there hustling for the vote. He's not out there supporting Ford. And that that is going to be a problem. Um, those more conservative voters will, for the most part, stay home. They're yes. not going to be enthusiastic about Ford. And so he's going to lose a big chunk of that Republican base. And the thing that I wonder about most is that constitutionally, Ford could not have run for a term in 1980. He, under the 25th Amendment, he had served too much of Nixon's term to run for a second term in his own right. So Ford would have, would have term limited. So Reagan would have been the front runner in 1980 anyway. Like, I don't know. It, maybe he didn't want there to be like a Ford or there would, it would have been too much Republican rule. Reagan seemed, just seems very opportunistic in this moment. And the thing that also bothers me is the media does not call him on this. Like today, there'd be all kinds of charges about party unity and not showing enough support and that Reagan doesn't really actively campaign. And now they're just, it, or in 1976, there's just 
none of that. Like Reagan just skates along and sort of is vaguely enthusiastic and the media just lets him go get away with it. And Reagan is by no means out of the spotlight. Like he does basically all that he can do to keep himself in the spotlight without actually like making any policy moves, without actually doing anything. Uh, and sort of it, the election becomes more about sort of Reagan kind of in the back, the background being kingmaker, but that yet not actually doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Reagan. Um, so here we are. The Republican Party has ultimately decided after all of this to go with the incumbents. Uh, but the, he is Ford is sort of weakened out of the gate within his own party over on the Democratic side. It's a total free for all. And I, I absolutely agree with what Rebecca said that with the sort of misconception of Carter being sort of anointed, the Democratic primary for the 1976 nominee is a free for all. The Democratic Party had tried very hard to unseat Nixon in 1972 unsuccessfully. And like, like many parties, you know, there was a split on how do we beat Nixon? Do we go to the center? Do we go further left and energize our base? What do we do? What do we do? And now they know they have an opportunity because Ford isn't as strong as a typical incumbent would be. There is still that shadow of Nixon that the Democratic Party can run against the corruption of the Republican Party overwhelmingly. And so just about every prominent Democrat has an interest in finding themselves a nominee because there is no heir apparent in the party at the moment. There's been a lot of upheaval and, and change in the Democratic Party over the 1970s. So you have a lot of people representing a lot of different factions within the Democratic Party. You have people like George Wallace, Jerry Brown, Morris Udall, and Henry Jackson, who is probably um, one of the most liberal uh, Democratic candidates at this time. So you have people who are certainly more liberal than Carter running. Um, you have people who are more conservative than Carter running. You really have a whole gambit within the party. Jimmy Carter, um, is is interested uh, in in this nomination. Uh, there are people who sort of see um, something really appealing in Jimmy Carter. He's um, a very popular within his state. Um, he's an outsider, which is going to really work in his favor. Um, the idea of being outside of the political system, being outside of the beltway, being outside of Washington is very appealing to the everyday voter because what the Nixon Watergate scandal really uh, shows for a lot of people is that in general, you can't trust politicians. And there's really this sense of anybody who's too engaged in the political system, even if they are a good person, uh, is going to be not is not to be trusted. So you have in 1976, a record number of primaries and caucuses. This is going to be the up to this point, the most number of um, primaries and caucuses Democratic candidates have to face. So at every step along the way, you have sort of this power shift. There are different candidates at different moments in the lead. Uh, and it really reminds me very much of how I think our primary system works today, where there's a lot of attention being paid state by state by state. And Carter decides, you know what? The best thing I can do is just focus on this state by state. Take it one state at a time, be on the ground as much as I can, let the voters get to know me, and I'm just going to worry about not winning every state. I'm just going to worry about placing and about keeping my name out there. Um, and so that's how Carter kind of does this. Uh, he's going to let the, the bigger guys duke it out. He's going to let them take the heavy hits at each other. He's just going to get out there and continue to increase his name recognition, continue to sort of increase uh, his viability, and he's just going to make it so he's just never really knocked out, which is a pretty good strategy. It's a really smart strategy. And Carter did not have a lot of national name recognition. Uh, there's a story, and I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but that he told his mother that he was going to run for president. And she was like, oh, honey, president of what? Um, at, you know, like no one thought of Jimmy Carter as running for president. And the outsider idea is a big one in 1976. The Democratic Party is a very strong data point that the Americans want an outsider. And that is the 1974 midterm election, which had been a big Democratic wave year. A lot of new Democrats, a lot of young people are going to be sort of brought into uh, Washington sort of in this big wave year. And so the, there is reason to suspect that that same thing is going to happen in 1976. It's a presidential year. You know, midterms back then were not the sort 
sort of thing that they are now. They were not particularly well attended, uh, but the, the presidential year is a big deal. This is the first time the voters have been able to express their emotions after the Watergate scandal. And so Carter runs a personal campaign because he's Carter and he's, you know, like he believes that the personal touch is really important. And so he's like sleeps on people's couches and answers the phone himself. And like he like one of his campaign slogans is like, you can't not vote for a guy who sleeps on your couch. And so he like goes to Iowa in the middle of January and like basically meets everybody he can and does all kinds of personal appearances and sort of grinds it out. And it's really kind of a masterful strategy. I think he positions himself as an outsider, but as a moderate. So he's Southern and he's going to take a lot of this sort of Southern interest because the Southerners, like there's this sense that the South will save this campaign. You know, Nixon had been from California and you can't trust California and Ford was from the Midwest, but the Southerners want somebody of their own and they can't trust George Wallace. George Wallace is the other Southerner. That's really a big name that's running. He's from Alabama and George Wallace is a whole thing. And he has a lot of history on the national stage stage, which we probably will get into at a different point. But George Wallace is very strongly sort of the, the wing of the Democratic Party that the Democratic Party is trying to phase out. They, he, he's segregationist. He's got a lot of strong sort of a lot of history that's not really good. And so the Democratic Party doesn't want to go in that direction. Jimmy Carter is nicer. And, you know, he goes to church regularly. He's from a teeny little town and his family owned a peanut farm. And it's just, you know, he represents this sort of new South and that's what they're going to sort of go with. And Carter takes off slowly at first, but eventually like he's going to get a lot of attention and it's pretty clear by sort of late spring, early summer, that Carter's going to be the guy and they're going to, um, actually some of the democratic party bigwigs are going to launch something called the ABC campaign, which is the anything but Carter, because they're worried that his Southern background is a problem. And Carter kind of wants to be everything to everybody which is a very Carter thing, but is not like he kind of is accused of talking out of both sides of his mouth in terms of his policies, like which side of the Democratic Party line does he toe? And the any, anybody but Carter movement does not gain enough traction. And it's very clear when the convention happens uh, that is going, he's going to be uh, the, the nominee. He's going to win very easily on the first ballot. And he picks as his vice president, Walter Mondale, rest in peace. He just died like two months ago. And there's a story that I read about his selection for vice president that I think encapsulates Jimmy Carter in like the best way. So Jimmy Carter, like a lot of presidents is vetting a couple different people for the vice presidential nominee. In his case, it's come down to six people and they all know who it is. They all know they are being vetted for this. Um, and the public sort of knows that these are the six guys. And of course they're all guys. And Carter has told them he's gonna make his selection on this date at night and the next morning he's gonna call whoever he selects. And the implication is he's not, he tells them he's not gonna, if you don't get a phone call, you're not it. And so they all, six of these guys wake up in the morning and Walter Mondale gets the first call and Jimmy Carter wants him to be vice president and Walter Mondale accepts. But then Jimmy Carter, because he's a decent and lovely person, wants feels like he should call all of the other guys. And so their phones all ring and they think, yay, my phone's ringing. That means I'm the guy. And then they hear Jimmy Carter like, no, sorry, I didn't pick you. And I just... <laughs> I feel like that's the most Jimmy Carter, that's the story of Jimmy Carter's political career. Like he wants to do the right thing and ends up sort of not. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and it is, it, it, I think it's important. It's a hard fought campaign. And um, it really, to me, illustrates how um, the, the nomination process is changing because one of the biggest sort of early favorites for the Democratic nomination was Senator Henry Jackson from the state of Washington. And uh, he's sort of going in in the heavy favorite, but he thinks he's doing so well. He skips Iowa and New Hampshire, which today, if you were mm -hmm. running for president in any party and you skip Iowa and New Hampshire, you might as well just pack it up and go. Um, 
it, you need, it, even if you don't win Iowa and New Hampshire, you need the media attention, you need the fundraising, you need the on the grounds enthusiasm that comes from being in those early primaries and caucuses. Um, but this was still, as we're in the 1970s, it's still, candidates are not, um, people who've been in politics longer are still not used to this idea that you have to go to every primary and every caucus and be on the ground. And so I think the 1976 election too is a good illustration of how campaigning for the presidency is starting to change, that those primaries and caucuses really matter, that you have to be out there on the ground. Um, we see it on, on the Republican side with Reagan building um, early popular support. Mm -hmm. And we see it with Carter, who was like, I'm never going to miss a primary. I'm going to be in these states. I'm a, even if I don't win them, I have to be here. And I have to, I have to get the voters to get to know me. And I have to have the media cover me so that my name's more recognizable across the board. So a real shift in how I think political campaigns are carried out. So going into this election, we have Ford, versus Carter. There are a couple other little people running. I like to mention Roger McBride, who was a libertarian. He was uh, has sort of this weird distinction for being the first presidential elector to cast a vote for woman, um, for a woman, which is sort of interesting. Uh, in 1972, four years earlier, he had been a faithless elector. He had um, voted outside of what he was supposed to, to vote. And he had voted for a woman named Theodora Tony Nathan, for vice president. So um, sort of a weird little bit of trivia there, but I find that interesting. And then there is a man running independently who's not like a nobody. There's a few other not really notable people running. There's a man named Eugene McCarthy, senator from Minnesota. He's running independent. Um, this is not unusual for McCarthy. Um, he would seek the presidency five times unsuccessfully. <laughs> Um, and we should probably do, I would love to do an episode on McCarthy at some point, because he makes some of the most fascinating political swings in his lifetime. We're talking about a man who at one point embodied maybe the most liberal wing of the Democratic Party, who ends up being sort of this big supporter of Reagan in the 1980s. It's sort of just this incredible trajectory from like, what and how? Yeah. Um, so both um, Ford and Carter are facing, though, um, a few other people. And so with an election this close and with a handful of kind of third party candidates, there is enough of a little factor of, you know, there are some spoilers there. And so you really, really need to be energizing your base, but also the middle is wide open in this election. So who is going to claim sort of these moderate middle voters, um, especially those that are dis, um, disenfranchised, um, those who feel um, frustrated by Watergate and by sort of this feeling that you can't trust the political the political system. Yes. And so Ford definitely has, I think, the upper hand. He's president of the United States. He can start campaigning immediately. He has what he calls the Rose Garden strategy, which is if I stand in the Rose Garden with the White House behind me and I give lots of speeches and I sign lots of documents, I'm just going to look like a president. Right. I'm going to look like I, I belong there. And people are going to think, oh, yeah, Ford, president. Yay. Let's do that for more four more years. Like he's doing good things. We should trust him. Like he and he looks... has that bicentennial, which means there are a ton of huge national events. He gets yeah. to greet the queen. He gets to throw out that that ceremonial first pitch. He gets to be at all of these big patriotic events, wrapping himself in the red, white, and blue. Um, it, it does not hurt at all no, no. for Ford to be leading the bicentennial. And so he gets a lot of really good press coverage. He looks very presidential. So he really has a strong start to this general campaign. And Carter really is going to just position himself as the outsider and as a reformer. And he's going to uh, make it clear that while he thinks Ford is probably a nice guy um, and he, he there's not a lot of personal attack against Gerald Ford because that's not Jimmy Carter's style, there is a lot of that's the party of Nixon. Yes. These are the people who let Nixon get pardoned. These are the people who let Nixon get away with what he got away with. And that is very much the drumbeat of Carter's campaign. And it's a good strategy. Jimmy Carter's not an attacker. And neither is Ford. These are two fundamentally decent people. Absolutely. Um, their wives are decent people. Their their running mates are decent people. Like they are running a good. They. It's not a totally clean campaign because this is still presidential politics. politics. You know, but they don't attack each other on a personal level, which is I think commendable. You know, um, and but Carter's going to very much say, do you, you know, Ford's nice and all, but do you, he's kind of bumbling and clearly he's run by like 
these larger party interests that let Watergate happen. And do you really want to trust him with four more years? There's a lot of, can you trust that party that Ford is tied to? And can you trust Ford to say no to this party? And there's sort of this like suggestion of like, well, you know, Ford's fine, but he's kind of beholden to these interests and that's not great. And this is part of how you see Reagan hurting Ford is because Ford has been pulled to the right. And so it gives credence to this idea and the Democratic Party is going to kind of play with this that, you know, Ford's not his own dude. He's not his own man. Hmm. Nope. Yeah, he's very influenced him. by the party. Yes. Um, Carter does start this election, even though Ford has, I think, visually so, uh, sort of the strong position of being the president and having these bicentennial elections. From a polling perspective, Carter starts out very, very, very strong. Carter comes out of the Democratic convention with like a 33-point lead in the polls. So, you know, by conventional wisdom, you probably look at that and go, Ford doesn't stand a chance, but Ford is in that Rose Garden every day. He's doing press conferences from the White House. He's going to these bicentennial events and Ford is able to just week by week by week by week close that gap, which I think is pretty impressive. And it's a testament to, I think, what Ford does have going for him, which is that he's generally a decent guy. He mm-hmm. takes the presidency seriously. He's trying to run the country in a good way. Uh, he's trying to move the country past the problems of of Nixon and the, and the corruption of the Nixon administration. Um, but Carter does really have that polling advantage. Then <laughs> Jimmy Carter does an interview with Playboy magazine. Oh, God. Now, this may shock some of you who only know Jimmy Carter the Carter of the 21st century, the adorable senior citizen, you know, who's out there building houses for Habitat for Humanity and just out there being charming as all get out. Um, he does this interview, which was not a bad idea. Carter was very much, and this is part of his campaign, a man of the people. You know, he wasn't just going to talk to the big news guys. He wanted to talk to um, the small news outlets. He wanted to talk to the, the, the more popular magazines and things that people read. And what is more popular than Playboy magazine, uh, particularly in the 1970s? Mm-hmm. Um, and so Carter does this interview and it's, it c- kicks up a little scandal um, oh, because he admits to having lust in his heart, <laughs> which is not, you know, true when people do. Yeah. Um, but this does not go over well with evangelicals. It does not go over well with um, religious voters. Um, the right wing of the Republican Party is very much going to seize on this. He also uses some kind of saucy language. He says the word screw in this interview, which is really hard for me to wrap my head around the Jimmy Carter in my mind saying the word screw. There's so many things about this that is just wonderful to me. Like, first of all, the idea that Jimmy Carter ever used anything remotely close to a cuss word is really kind of amazing. Um, Also, like the idea that this would be a scandal from the remove of 2020, like, or 2021 now, is ludicrous. Like, politicians say far worse words before they get up out of bed in the morning. Like, they're seriously like... This is not, this is a scandal that's like very kind of quaint in a, in a real way. Like he gives an interview to Playboy and admits that he's like looked at women who aren't his wife. Like, okay, like this is, this is where we're going with this. Um, but unfortunately it, this gets seized on um, by religious voters, by evangelicals, um, by the right as first of all, how could he speak to this magazine? How yes. could he even dignify yes. um, this this with a with an interview, a presidential candidate talking to Playboy, uh, and then then the way in which he talks very candidly and I think very humanly about you know what it's like to be a married man and to be mm-hmm. a Christian and and to be all these things. Um, it's it, it's fascinating to read the interview. We'll put a link in the show notes. Um, it's fascinating to read because like today I think. No one would advise a president to do this, presidential candidate to do this. Right. And it's one line in a much longer interview that is, you know, as happens a lot, like the press seizes on this one line and tries to make a thing out of it. And it becomes this big semi-embarrassing moment for Jimmy Carter. And he watches his numbers in the polls drop. He's also... um, they, they're going to have a debate, the first televised presidential debate since 1960. Uh, Ford does well, actually. Um, most viewers think he wins. by He kind of hits Carter for his sort of lack of experience and his, Carter's kind of vague. And Carter has been vague 
about a lot of his issues, about where he stands on a lot of the controversial and sort of problematic things. His campaign has been so based on personality and so based Mm -hmm. on, I'm just not that. I'm not DC. I'm not a political animal. I'm not this. But he has not really laid out a really strong sense of what his platform is and where his policies are. And Ford is able to attack him on that in a nice way. And he does it in a nice enough way that the debate Ford doesn't come across as attacking, but he really does hit Carter for that vagueness on his policy. He does, which is the same thing, honestly, that Carter's going to attack Reagan for four years later, like spoiler alert, Carter just, and Ford has the like sort of sign of the white house behind him. Like Ford is the one negotiating with our enemies. And this is 1976. We are still super duper in the midst of the cold war. And so this kind of experience, this leadership, you know, we're a nuclear country. We're facing down the Soviet union. This matters very much to people. And so the idea that, you know, Ford has this experience doing this and Carter does not really matters. And I feel like the debate had the debate, like the election happened the next day, we'd have had had a different outcome. Absolutely. And Ford is able to use that televised debate, I think, to hit back against some of that cultural perception of him being this bumbler, you know, there had, we had talked to, as you mentioned a little earlier, you know, this idea of him being sort of this like klutz and being Mm -hmm. a little bit of an airhead or being a little empty headed. And he gets to go up there and he's together in this debate and Mm -hmm. he shows a sense of strength. He's clear about what he's doing as president. He's able to, and I think people watching are like, oh, that's the Mm -hmm. guy not yeah. what we're seeing in the pop culture right. representation of him. And I think you're right at the election that happened after that first televised debate, um, which is kind of crazy to me that we went 16 years without a televised presidential debate. I know, right? That does seem to me to be a lot. Famously, the first one is Kennedy versus Nixon. Um, but then- And it we, just proves how important, years. right? We go 16 years and it proves how important presidential debates are sort of this is going to sway a lot of opinion and Ford you know looks presidential he's got that three-piece suit and he's a bigger guy than Carter is he's very tall again football player and Jimmy Carter just kind of comes off as vague not bad just vague (laughs) and then and then (laughs) this is a whole election of like somebody's doing great and then it's like this is one of those elections I feel like it's a race to the finish line because whoever makes the blunder last is going to lose. And in this case, it's Ford. Uh, Ford is going to blunder in October by denying Soviet strength in Eastern Europe. And so he's, and then he goes a week without retracting the statement, watching his polls fall. And so he's basically saying that the Soviet Union really isn't in as much control in Eastern Europe as we think they are, as the American public thinks they are. And it seems like he's being conciliatory to the Soviet Union. And it seems like he's just, it's all very, very bad. And this for for a country that is terrified of the Cold War and terrified of the Soviets, uh, for whom the Russians are a boogeyman, this is not a good look. Um, and there's probably some international relations that's going on here um, as far as you know Ford's negotiations with the Soviet Union, but it just looks not good. Yeah. And so this is going to be, you know, it's going to, he's going to take the hit at the polls. He manages to bounce back. And this is one of my favorite aspects of Gerald Ford's campaign. Uh, He decides to do a series of television spots with a former St. Louis Cardinal, a very beloved figure um, from the sports world in the 1970s, Joe Garagiola Sr. And uh, these TV spots are so popular. They riff on sports, on politics, on the issues of the day. It ends up kind of being nicknamed the Joe and Jerry show. And Ford sees himself sort of climbing back up. Um, Mm -hmm. So every time one of these candidates takes a hit, they find a way to sort of endear themselves back to the public. And it really is a horse race. It's, you know, one pulls out ahead, then the other, then the other, then the other. So um, as we head into November, there is no clear sense of who's going to win this election. Um, You know, today we have so much prognostication and so much analysts and all this data. Not that that's always correct, but in 1976, if you look at the newspaper coverage, it really is week to week who 
people think is going to win this election. Uh, I do like to mention that 1976 also gives us our first ever formal vice presidential debate. So that's a relatively new tradition. We haven't even been doing it for 50 years. So Mondale and Dole will debate uh, in Houston at the Alley Theater. Uh, I'm from Houston and uh, yeah. I know the theater well. Um, Dole does not do himself any favors in that debate um, because he makes some comments that end up being somewhat controversial, basically saying you can't have a Democratic president because every time we have one, we go to war and all the wars are the faults of Democratic presidents. This is something that a World War II veteran says. I mean, this is a man who fought in World War II bravely, um, very much so. Um, Bob Dole is still alive at the time of the recording of this podcast. Yeah. Um, but this would really be um, a bit of a controversy yeah. um, because this one sense that, you know, Republicans don't ever get us into wars is not true. It neglects the entire role of Congress. Um, but it also just sort of comes across as, wait a second, are you saying we shouldn't have fought in World War II? Are you saying that we shouldn't have been fighting against communism? Uh, it really ends up being uh, a bit of a, a blunder for Dole. Yes. So as we're heading towards Election Day, it's pretty even down the stretch. Um, and it's going to remain that way. Uh, the election's not called until 3.30 Eastern the next morning. So that's like... You know, it's I mean, a granted, full, full day and and some change. Yeah, granted, the you know technology obviously in the seventies isn't like super instant like it is today, but that's a you know that's quite the uh, time lag there. Uh, it is the closest presidential result, at least electorally, since nineteen sixteen. Uh, Carter is going to win 23 states with 297 electoral votes. Ford wins 27 states with 240 electoral votes, which is the most states earned by a losing candidate. And that's still true today. Um, And it's it's very unusual to have won more states, but still lose the electoral count. Yes. It's only the second time in history that someone has won the presidency with less than half of the states. The first time is actually Jack Kennedy in 1960. Um, the popular vote is also extremely close, sort of belying that very like landslide narrative that we have. Carter is going to win 50.08%. 50.08. That's not a lot. Uh, and Ford gets 48.02%. And the other candidates make up that very small sliver of difference. That's not a lot. It's not a lot. And I think, uh, you know, we constantly hear about 1976 and it's this huge Democratic victory or Carter wins in a landslide or it's this whole, you know, kind of refutation of of the Nixon uh, controversy and the Nixon scandal. But really, it's very close. And what I think the election in 1976 illustrates uh, is something we've continued to see since is how tight elections are and how divided the country is, how close we are to sort of being at a 50-50 divide on things. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a perfect illustration of that. Um, Carter is definitely aided, though, by the fact that he picks up the South. Um, The South wins this election for Jimmy Carter. Um, He is going to do exceptionally well in the South. He only loses Virginia and Oklahoma. So the only two Southern states he doesn't pick up. He's the first Democrat to carry the Deep South since John F. Kennedy. And he's the first Democrat since Lyndon B. Johnson to win a majority of Southern states. So um, he's able to sort of come in. um, He's able to sort of pull back um, the South from the Republican Party. Um, However, if you know a little bit about politics since 1976, you know that this isn't going to be long lived in many states. This will be the last time to date that Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, or South Carolina have voted for a Democratic president. And I feel like it's such a, like the legacy of Carter's, I mean, there's a lot of legacies of Carter's victory, but one of them is like Carter's the only Democrat to win between 1964 and 1992. So he's the only Democrat to win the presidency in that whole span. And I think it says something that in 1982, the winner is another Southerner with a Southern vice president. So I feel like that's important. And my, for my, what I think of the 76 election is it shows a lot of the part, both parties in an embryonic stage, what's going to happen to them for the next 35 years, which is Ford, the Republican party 
runs to their right, runs to their ideological flank, picks Bob Dole as his vice presidential candidate, and sort of continues to run to the right. And that's going to be something that continues in the Republican Party. Jimmy Carter is much more moderate, and he's going to pick a more moderate vice president. And he's basically going to tell, and the Democratic Party will spend the next 35 years telling its ideological flank, the very liberal wing of the Democratic Party, basically sit down and shut up. Who else are you going to vote for? And that's something that's going to continue. So the Democratic Party shuts off its left wing and the Republican Party sort of moves towards its right wing. And so you see the beginnings of that for the next 30 years, really, that continues to happen. Um, The Democratic Party continues to tell its left wing, you're not going to get any of your priorities if the other guy is elected. Um, So you might as well swallow it and vote for the moderate guy. And the Republican Party continues to move in the right towards the right flank. So I feel like it's an interesting notion. And it is always interesting to me, how would things have been different if Ford had picked a different vice president? If he had told told the right wing, the Reaganites, you know, look at where else are you going to go? Like, who else are you going to vote for? I want to appeal to the moderates because that's what's going to swing this election. Could he have drawn off enough support from Carter to win? I think there is a a path for that to have happened. If uh, Ford could have drawn off some of the middle of the road Carter supporters, I think there's, you can make a pretty strong case that the vice presidential pick was absolutely. Yes. I feel like considering the conservative, like had conservatives stayed home. Oh, well, like, he would have drawn off that support in the mod- in the middle of the uh, country. And I feel like that could have won the election for Gerald Ford. I definitely think one of the other legacies of this election, the 1976 election, is that a lot of the major players are going to continue to be major political players through the mm-hmm. 1980s and 1990s. And for someone, I th- or I think for people our age particularly, um, when I think about who the big political figures were in my childhood, it's a lot of these same names. Mm-hmm. Um, these are going to be the people who are going to be uh, shaping national politics well up into the end of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, this election marks the only time in our history that the two major candidates and their running mates would all at some point win their party's nomination for the presidency, but lose the general election. So just to break that down, Gerald Ford wins the party's nomination, loses the general election in 1976. Carter wins his party's nomination uh, in 1980, but loses the general. Walter Mondale wins the Democratic nomination in 1984, but he loses the general. And then Bob Dole comes back again, wins the party's nomination in 1996 and loses the general. So it's sort of fascinating that typically, I think when you look at an election year and you look at the two candidates and their two running mates, there's always one or two that kind of never come back around. Mm -hmm. But this year, 1976, these are four people who will remain very involved in their party um, through their career to the end of their life. Some of these guys until very, very recently. Um, And they're going to shape politics up until um, really at least the 2000 election, if not even into the 21st century. It is remarkable to me that they're all like, that's my favorite fun fact ever. I think that they all are going to get their parties like nomination and then lose. lose. And of the four major candidates, 1976 was like 45 years ago of the major candidates who run in this election. There are four of them. Two of them are still with us. Carter's still alive. Bob Dole is still alive. He's going to be 98 in July. Carter's going to be, what, 97 coming up on it? Walter Mondale was alive up until a few recently. Yeah, a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago. This is amazing. Uh, and I, I do just as a little coda to this, I, I want to say that one of the things I really respect about Jimmy Carter is when this election is over, um, he has nothing but good things to say about Gerald Ford as an individual. Carter really goes into his presidency wanting to unite the country, wanting to sort of, uh, and I think many presidents go into the presidency um, after an election with the intention of being a unifier, of being bipartisan. Uh, Carter specifically praises Gerald Ford in his inaugural address. He says, for myself and for our nation, I want to thank my predecessor for all he has done to heal our land. Uh, Carter doesn't have to do that. He doesn't, there's no reason to, um, but he does. Um, He is very, uh, very much makes a, a, a point to praise uh, Ford at the top of his inaugural address to sort of talk about moving past this uh, scandal and, and shadow of Watergate. Uh, Ford and Carter actually form a very meaningful relationship uh, and friendship following this um, election, uh, not just the way in which former presidents sort of 
bond together, uh, I think, for philanthropy and fundraising. But the two of them become very, very close. Um, their wives are going to become very close. They're going to spend time together. Um, the Carters will be some of the last people to visit Gerald Ford before his death. Um, they are going to become um, lifelong friends. Uh, and I think it's because, as you said, at the end of the day, these were two genuinely decent people, two men who really love this country and wanted to do what was best for it. Um, uh, two men who, at the end of the day, put the country before themselves. And I, I think they had that connection. Um, and so it's sort of a nice end to the story. We don't always have that after elections. <laughs> and yet Ford and Carter sort of form this great little bipartisan friendship. I know, that's kind of nice. I like it. I do. Um, Carter actually was close to Mondale as well up until Mondale's death. Notably, Reagan's not close to any of them. Um, <laughs> uh, and um yeah, I think that the 76 election is a lot of very interesting juice that continues to sort of spill out uh, over the next 45 years. I think there's a lot happening. And I love that, you know, you get get a chance to talk about the sort of changing political winds. And uh, it's really fascinating to me. Plus, Carter, again, Carter and Ford are fundamentally decent and good people. And yeah, I like them both. And from a historian's perspective, I find elections where it's not clear who's going to win the most interesting. I may not always feel that way as a voter, um, but I definitely feel that way as a historian. It's much more interesting to have a dynamic primary. It's much more interesting to look over the course of a campaign and have different people as the front runner. Uh, and 1976 to me is probably one of the last years that we truly have that, that we have such a, an up in the air primary for both parties and then have an, a, a general that is so tight and so neck and neck. And so it makes it really juicy uh, and really interesting from a historian perspective. Yes. Trust me, this will not be the last election um, podcast we do. Um, the election 100 years earlier, 1876, was also a possibility um, for this uh, particular episode. So we're definitely going to circle back uh, probably in the fall into the election of 1876. But we want to thank you guys, as always, for tuning in, listening to Tour Guide Tell All. It is always just such a pleasure to share this with you. Uh, if you are enjoying the podcast, make sure that you're subscribing and reviewing us wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, make sure you're engaging with us on social media. You can follow us on Twitter at Tour Guide Tell and on Facebook and Instagram at Tour Guide Tell All. Um, you can always pitch the pod. Send us your ideas. Uh, we love getting ideas from our listeners. Uh, we have a couple things coming up that were that are listener suggestions, so we're really excited. You can also also email us at tour guide tell all uh, i promise whatever you guys send your emails your thoughts your reflections your recommendations for further reading we read all of that we love it so thank you for your emails thank you for your social media shout outs thank you so very much for continuing to listen 